1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So we're outside. We are. On it's a so lovely nice. morning toward the end of May. And uh, we're recording in person today. With people. Later, uh, which is Real fantastic. people. The out of doors. Um, and so, you know, following all the guidelines <laughs> out of doors? and the rest. Yeah. But, uh, so here we have Amanda Mina. Welcome. Hello. And Allison Williams. Hello. Welcome. And Cupboard Master Ken, Ken Bell. Bell's with us. Hello, Yay. everybody. It's and, great to be uh, back. So and and we have a great interview today for this episode with Linda K. Klein, who wrote we a book do. called Pure, which is kind of the book to read. I would say there there are others as well, but on the purity culture, on purity culture within evangelicalism, particularly in the 1990s and the 2000s. But I thought we would just for a few minutes ask uh, questions in general, have a little conversation about youth ministry back <laughs> in the day. But before we do that, okay, so be ready for that. But before da, 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 we do da. that, even though it's morning. <laughs> I am looking at one of the most beautiful bottles um, I have ever seen. Cupboard Master Ken. Yes, yeah, so we are back at Woods Distillery in North Vancouver for their amazing collection of drinks. Uh, this is an Amaro, but it's an Amaro Chiaro. So it's a, cl- it's a white, I guess, yeah, a white Amaro. It, it's clear, pretty much. As opposed to sort of the dark red, almost almost brownie color of the regular Amaro. It's a gentler, it's it's a bit uh, smoother. Because Amaro uh, means bitter. Am it means bitter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this has some lemon and star anise in it. So it's just a little bit of a twist on the classic Amaro. You can drink it by itself. You can make it. It's a it. breakfast tomorrow. It, <laughs> <laughs> it is now. We officially said this moment. Well, when I was at the distillery, they said that they're like, just use a little bit of soda water with it. It makes a really great kind of like summer cocktail. Mm, that's very it, nice. Like Isn't I'm not amazing? a big oh. fan of the original Amaro. It's a bit intense for me, but this is a whole different thing. So I feel like I get a lot of the complexity, but it it it's a little easier. I am a big without fan the of punch the of face. Amaro, but the yeah, yeah. This no, has more I, I know that you like that. But this has a bit more citrus in it. It's just and mm. it, it's it does feel. It's a very summery. different thing, but yeah. it's it's lovely. Yeah. So good. and so the beauty of the bottle and the oh. label. I think that the and Woods has some of the best graphic design. They have done mm-hmm. some phenomenal work with they their, their color, beautiful. their They did their a collaboration label, with uh, somewhere else that we've been before and featured, uh, Wild Eye. Wild Eye. They've done they a couple of collaborations. a Negroni mm. Ale, which is Amaro and something else. And the, oh, my goodness. And they've fantastic. also, they did the le- Lemoncello yeah, beer the Lemoncello, uh, yeah. as well. So they've done, uh, so... If you are in the air, or you can go online to yeah, Woods Distillery. If you're not around North Vancouver, you order it online. order it, and it is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so. very much, Cupboard oh, Master Ken. Yay. Yes. Um, mm. Lovely breakfast. <laughs> Drinks <laughs> on a patio. Um, so, in, I the feel few so minutes, Italian. in the few minutes before we move to the interview, uh, we have, uh, I just thought, because the interview is, is talking about purity culture in the 1990s and the 
2000s, Early 2000s. It was still very prevalent around then, too. So we all have experience. Allison was just entering youth group in the late 1990s. So For for all of our listeners out there, I'm I'm a bit younger than than Todd. (laughs) But but Amanda uh, was in youth group in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Ken and I were youth pastors, which we're so proud of. I I think we want everybody to know that we were youth pastors. Because, you know, that's the kind of thing that... (laughs) For somewhere between 15 and 30 years... It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, my Were, goodness. So here's the question. Were the 1990s and the early 2000s the peak of youth ministry? I, it was certainly the, the peak of the professionalization of youth ministry. or and Because uh, when I was in youth group in the 80s, it was almost exclusively run by parent volunteers. Maybe a few older college-age right. people ran yeah. it. Um, right. And then you began to get the professionalization. You can go and get a degree in youth ministry. You hired youth pastors. I don't have um, a degree in youth ministry. I just want to be really <laughs> you clear. You want to be clear. No. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not questioning people who do. I'm just... Yeah, yeah. And Was and that the emergence of things like Youth Unlimited and all of those organizations as well? Oh, they're still or? around. There's youth specialties. Youth specialties yeah. was, was the, the big, big one, one. With the big conferences. Well, which started yeah. off with like how to do games. Yeah. Mm. You know what? My husband, Keith, who was also a youth pastor for, for quite a period, he really loved that portion of things. Man, he did. He loved epic being a youth games. Pastor. I think he was just excited about them as, as the kids were. I remember so him talking mad. about them. What <laughs> was the purpose? Now, I'm just for those, particularly those who, I think of there's a show on HBO called Crashing, Pete Holmes. Ah, uh, yes. Not the, who's, who's the woman who also has a show called mm. Crashing? Phoebe. Oh, Phoebe Waller Bridge? Right. Um, Walter Bridge. Walter Bridge, oh, I think. Dear. Anyway, that's Uh-oh. fantastic. I'm embarrassed. Walter Bridge. The Pete Holmes thing is also great. He's a comedian who grew up in youth group culture. And well, stuff. clearly, yeah. the references and so in it. so many little, like, you know, he puts a... Uh, a Please CD tell me he played Flood. Like Did he play Flood? Jars of Clay. Jars yeah, of clay. I, think, I think it was and Flood. And if I can't um, swim after 40 yeah, There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, so... That's for all those youth uh, group alumni the, out there. So for those who aren't familiar with the culture, <laughs> what was the purpose of youth ministry. So you can go from, I would imagine, Ooh, for different philosophy. demographics, you know, if you were a parent, if you were a kid, if you were a church, what, what was the purpose of youth ministry? Amanda? I mean, I've been trying to explain this to my partner, Gavin, for a while because he didn't grow up in the church. So he didn't go through that experience of youth group and the all-nighters at North Shore oh Alliance. Gosh. Do you remember, remember those? That. Oh my goodness. To I, me, those were like yeah, the remember, pinnacle I, of... We remember we ran them. Ran them. <laughs> that, that, that is concerning to me as somebody yeah. who knows you now. When you yeah. think about like pinnacle like youth group experiences, those were ridiculous. Like hundreds of kids from all over the North Shore who were like for me, doing whatever they the wanted most all hated night. Days mm-hmm. of my life. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I I love <laughs> I planned them, but I I enjoyed them. Like I enjoyed those events. I uh, mean, they brought a hot tub into the lobby. What? Yes, we did. Yeah, oh and then wasn't gosh. there like a bull riding thing? One there year was in the one lobby year too. Yeah, yeah. And See what Gavin missed. It <laughs> was like all night floor hockey. Yeah, swimming at two a.m. Yeah, and, and a gospel message. <laughs> so there's there was like, there's 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 gotta be that. Thing. Like, what there was always for? an altar call at midnight. Is it all to get to that? It felt like it. Like it was very formulaic at times. Like, but not yeah. always. So like, I'm grateful still for many of those experiences, and friendships you made, and, and the community else. that I had, and. On a personal level, like, it gave me a safe space to be with friends when home didn't feel very safe. Mm. So, like, I'm really grateful for that. And I want to be clear about that. But then I also look back on some things and think, what the fuck were they thinking? (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) 
Who well, figured this was a good Ken, idea? What, yeah. what were you thinking? <laughs> so oh, Ken. Yeah, back to you. Category you're looking at. Uh, I think some of the safety things. I, I remember racing bands through Mexico. No, 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 no! Don't say this. Uh, okay, we, we'll skip that. It is remarkable. I, parents, parents let us take their children, uh, children, teenagers on yes, trips those are to Mexico. Yeah, like and not the, not the safe parts. Not the safe parts of Mexico. <laughs> um, we were like 25 the first we time were, we went we down. Oh my gosh! And As a parent now, I'm a little concerned. Isn't that alarming? It is. I can clearly remember being in Mexico and you guys, the vans were racing, and then a truck was coming towards us. And I kid you and not, like somebody threw a rock through the back of the van window. Oh I don't think yeah. Todd, you weren't yes, there, but that. the van actually was on two wheels yes, going I around that. a corner. Oh, I, I was not part of that. Ha- I was have, never like statute of limitations expired. I think so. I think it's okay to talk about this. In terms of in terms of youth ministry, I think some of it really depended upon the denomination you were a part of. So I grew up in the Anglican Church, and uh, a, a lot of it was youth ministry was meant, well, for a couple of things. It was meant to make sure we didn't lose it to the big Baptist church in town. Lose, uh, like, families. Kids. Lose family. Mm, families, yeah. particularly. Uh, it was also a time when there wasn't a lot of other, like, if you didn't grow up with a family that went skiing, the only opportunity you had to go skiing was Youth oh, groups that was were me. the one group that, that was organized. Yeah, absolutely. There were retreats. Ski and retreats mm-hmm. and going to the lake and all these, all these sort oh, of yeah, things. So there was us. a huge fun aspect to it and social aspect to it, but also a way of making church feel uh, connected and relevant to kids. It was a little bit different than Sunday morning service. I think where the church went, where some of the youth ministry went off is some of the um, more deep conservative theology, evangelical, the fundamentalist theology. We're protecting kids from the world. We're protecting yeah. kids from the world. Better we here don't than better here than hanging yeah, out. Yeah. So when when fear well, you know. when fear yeah. became the motivation for sending your kids, we're mm-hmm. afraid of what the rest of the world might teach them. Therefore, we'll send them but to somewhere still safe. Present. I think that's oh, still safe. Oh, it certainly safe. is. But I I think it depends present. on on like the the person who's leading. I know that for for Keith, one of the things that he decidedly did is he's like, I just want to make a safe place for kids to come mm-hmm. and just have a chance to actually still be kids while they're still Like kids. safe in terms of like being able to be who they are and enjoy Be who they are. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I can't necessarily vouch for physical safety. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> like for him, he just really wanted to have a place for, for people that just, they could be. I think... The, the thing that's so interesting about all of that is that those safe spaces were created. Absolutely. And, like, yeah. honestly, Ken and Todd and my youth pastor, who, like, there's some things that I question now, but yeah. they Makes created awesome those safe times. spaces. Just fantastic. Like. Absolutely. But in between that, there were these weird weekend retreats. Oh, I remember with those. Either the altar calls or Always the altar call. you do, like, worship services, like, six or seven times in one weekend. When does that happen in normal life? So there's this like weird emotional manipulation where you create kind of these highs, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you get for, sent for, out for into the universe. People, but for many people in those in youth group at the time, those were the most meaningful things. Absolutely, those were the things that like there's mm-hmm. the whole concept of like you know the spiritual high on, yeah. on a retreat. Mm-hmm. Or the but I think where it became a little bit damaging is that after that you're kind of constantly chasing that emotional exactly. high, and necessarily yeah. can't find it yeah. well you and see, it isn't see, built yeah. into like how to then either be in normal life and not mm-hmm. be in that perpetual state mm-hmm. and like you have those times where you feel really close to god or you feel really like 
bonded or whatever, connected with some, like one of your friends or whatever, you guys have this great experience together. And then you go back to school, you go back to your home, you go back to all those sorts of things. And I feel like there were definitely some misses. I mean, I'm not sure anyone here is going, yay, rah, rah, we need to like do more of that. No. But it, it I, I feel like my, my memories of, of youth and of church and evangelicalism and all those sorts of things, they're, they're complicated. Yeah. Because they are no, in no means entirely bad at all. And I'm so grateful for a lot of things that came out of them, but it's complicated because there are certainly parts of it that I'm like, oh, I wish that that had been done differently. And that was damaging to me. And I'm assuming damaging to other people. I I think so. Most of my close friendships that I still have now, I made then. Yeah. Well, like like some of the closest connections I have in my life were made during that time. So I I have nothing to gratitude for. My husband and I met because of my friend who. Like her and I were at school and then we were at church together and they're cousins. And so we started doing things together. And like my sister-in-law who married my, my husband's brother was like from like one of my childhood friends. We went through church together, all that sort of stuff. So like some of those I would say the same, Jen. You would say the same. 30, yeah. 35 years ago, Jennifer and I met at church. I so met, if that I was met, your intent, you guys, you did it. Well, Nailed yeah, it. And I well met, done. I met my <laughs> wife uh, because I was running a church camp and she wanted to come up as mm-hmm. uh, staff on church camp. Wait and a minute. So... <laughs> oh, she she wasn't wanting to come up as a camper. I think. Oh, uh, <laughs> Whoa, let's be Just clear. So to to um, Allison's thing before we hand it to the interview, <laughs> that complicated nature I think is something that like I still know people who seem to be I I don't want to speak for them but seem to be longing for the like vitality they felt in hmm. youth group days. I also know mm-hmm. other people who are like. I wish I'd never been part of that. It, mm. it was damaging to me. In the book, um, Linda K. Klein mentions a, a woman. Uh, she chooses a name, Solange, right? Solange. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. It's a, it's a fake name. <laughs> but who has, I think, two daughters and, and mentions that. She regrets uh, sending her daughters. Yeah. She regrets sending her daughters to youth group. Mm-hmm. That she thinks it costs them in terms of their own identity their own sense yeah. of what it meant to be a, a woman, a young woman in, in the world. Um, and that now that I think was a pretty extreme experience. But I think for all of us, whether it's personally or or in institutionally, to look and go, we can see some of the the, the things that was aiming to be. But let's be honest about the benefit yeah. and the cost, right? I, mm-hmm. I think that we, y- you and I, Todd, were because uh, we were both youth pastors at the same time and worked a lot together. Um, we were aware of some of those sensitivities and s- aware of some of those dangers, and so I don't. I, I, I think, think we more than more we than were. Most, yeah. We were pretty careful to make sure. I don't think we always got it right. I don't think no, uh, not I'm not going to say we we got <laughs> everything perfect, but I I think we were aware of the downside and the dangers and the manipulation, and so we tried to make sure that um, we we avoided those. Uh, but I uh, but. I'm sure that there's people out there who went to our youth groups who also express, I sure, wish I had never sure gone. Yeah. I hope most of them look back on it and, and, and appreciate it and, and, and stuff. But I do think there's there's always that that risk. And, of course, the other reason churches had youth groups was because we got to get these people committed to heaven before they turn 18 because they're not likely right. to afterwards. Every, so know, there's that the motivation, that too. Everybody makes that decision before they turn Yeah, 17, so that was so a big reason for a lot of churches to I mean, have. That's, just, that's a lot of fear. That, yeah. That's still that fear. That feels totally fear-based. Did you have to go back and then report on like how many kids raised their hand during the altar uh, call? Because I know that there were some pastors that but did. But indirectly, yes. Yeah. You knew you were being. You knew you were being kind of. It was being measured how. Well, how and I mean, mm-hmm. and I mean, like um, my husband Keith worked at the same church as as you, Todd. Um, and when you were the senior pastor there, and I think one of the reasons that he had such a good experience and he was able to 
to intentionally try to not have some of those those more negative aspects is because in some ways you'd already broken ground and you guys both pushed back against that I mean I know of meetings that he had where he tried to try to justify like well why are you doing this and why aren't you doing more bible studies and why aren't you doing more of this you mean justified to the board yeah Yeah. well and to parents Mm -hmm. sometimes because there was there was a concern about like is this churchy enough and Keith was just like I mean he can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here, but I, I I think I understand. Like we've had lots of conversations. Um, he he was just like, no, like they they can they can just be here, and that's more important mm-hmm. that they know that like I care about them, God cares about them, and this is safe. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, think I'm, I'm I know I keep bringing up the altar call thing, but I think the the message that at least I felt growing up because it happened so frequently. I had this idea that I had to continually rededicate myself. Yeah. There was this constant like battle in my head. Like I'm not doing enough. I'm not enough. Okay. I have to rededicate myself to Jesus. And there was plenty of opportunity to do that. And it took me a really long time to realize that's maybe yeah. not the way this works. That there's some and theological... Uh, yeah, yeah. There's something theologically troubling and that's in pressing, that. Yes. That's pressing in on the shame thing, which is what Linda yeah. Klein brings up yeah. in her book. I mean, I think that's a good segue to, to that topic. I think is so, yeah. She really emphasizes the, the, the use of shame to uh, manipulate and control the behaviors and thoughts and belief systems and theology of children and teens. Fantastic. Well, that's... yeah. That's where we'll uh, hand it off. And so whether you were a youth worker, a youth pastor, whether you were in youth group, um, we do hope that that you can, and I sure hope there were positive things. Uh, Some people had really negative experiences, but that you can take those positive things. Mm -hmm. But also in your kind of progress and development and growth and whatever, say, yeah, there were some things there that uh, <laughs> that we're going to need to maybe we could have done behind. that better. And, yes. and I think there are things <laughs> could have been handled better. I think there are things that we need to leave behind theologically. Yeah. Yes, about some certainly. Of that. And I think it's really hopeful that the the peak of youth ministry is probably behind us, and that there are better ways that format, anyways. Into, yeah. yeah, the demographic kind of mm-hmm. uh, focus, uh, uh, the sales type of thing of how to get people to church and. So uh, thanks, you guys, very much. Thanks for sharing the morning drink. And uh, we're really grateful now to uh, uh, have the interview with Linda K. Klein. Today we are speaking uh, with Linda K. Klein. She is the founder and president of Break Free Together, a nonprofit storytelling organization dedicated to helping people release shame and claim their whole selves. Uh, Linda is also a deconstruction and purity culture recovery coach, and she does both group and uh, individual Uh, coaching. And she's also the author of Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. So Linda, thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm so happy to be here. I wanted to to start off by uh, noting something. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization, Break Free? Yeah. So Break Free Together is in some ways a a response, the title is a response to the book title that you just read. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the end of the sub of the um, subtitle is, and how I broke free. Ah, I see. You know, <laughs> but that's really quite misleading because the reality is, is that, you know, the book tells certainly my story, but the stories of so many others as well. And, you know, was written over, you know, over a decade of interviews of people. And in many ways, my story 
of how I broke free is the story of how we broke free. You know, it was through this uh, experience of exchanging stories with other people, of realizing I wasn't alone, you know, of realizing the things that I thought were just me and that were, you know, my inherent badness or brokenness or, you know, lack of health or whatever it is was actually, were actually shared experiences that came out of a shared upbringing in purity culture um, had so much to do with my own experience of healing. And many of my interviewees said the same thing, you know, that after an interview with me, when I would tell them, you know, some of my own stories and response to their stories, or may even tell them the stories of some of my other interviewees anonymously, of course, you know, that was the beginning of their healing journey. So Break Free Together, the nonprofit organization, uh, you know, is really based in my experience of healing and my interviewees' experience of healing. Um, We are a storytelling-rooted organization. We create all kinds of different opportunities for people to come into story with one another. So in the past, we've done things like a postcard exchange for people who want to tell their stories but are not ready to attach their name to it, right? Um, or um, we've done in-person purity culture story exchanges where people are in small groups where they're, we're in a large group, but then we kind of gather in small groups within that large group and tell the truth about our lives, you know, on the very thing that we were told to keep secret the most, you know, sexuality. And what we're doing right now is we're actually taking that in-person story exchange model and we are developing a training uh, online for people to be able to lead their own purity culture story exchanges. So it won't just be in these big group experiences, but it'll be in people's kitchens and in their living rooms and on their floors, which I think is going to be really powerful. I'm picturing like the churches in, I guess we're talking about the nineties, um, in your book and the, where, uh, purity culture was really big. And have you been asked into any, uh, places that, that, um, presented that kind of teaching and thinking and culture as kind of, because you say you do one-on-one and group coaching. Have you found your way back to any of the places where that stuff was promoted as kind of like, okay, we need to recover generally, or is it more person to person? Such a great question. Well, you know, the story exchanges that I was doing in person before the pandemic, (laughs) Uh, were often hosted by churches. Mm, um, on occasion, wow. yeah. That's on occasion, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, wait till I finish the other half of the <laughs> sentence, and you might be less surprised. But you know, on occasion, it was evangelical Christian churches, but mm. for the most part, it was not. It was other kinds of churches, okay. um, you know, that had people who joined the United Church of Christ or joined the Unitarian Church or what have you, um, seeking a spiritual experience in which they wouldn't be deeply shamed the way that they were in purity culture. So there was still a lot of recovery to be done, Mm -hmm. even though they were now within a a church system that didn't, um, you know, teach the same harmful messages that they were recovering from. But, you know, it was always really exciting when I would get to go into an evangelical Christian church. The only evangelical Mm -hmm. Christian churches that brought me in were quite progressive. Right. Um, but you know, but you just, (laughs) there was such a deep understanding among everyone in the room. You know, there's, you know, these things that you learn in purity culture are actually not foreign to anyone. 
Mm. because, you know, sexual control and gender-based control, patriarchy, all these types of things are so well-worn, right? Um, We all have been impacted by these things in various ways and to various degrees. So, you know, so really anybody, I feel like, can identify with some degree of the stories that my interviewees tell Mm. about growing up in purity But if I go into an evangelical church, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's just like raucous because like everything I say, it's like it erupts like, oh, oh, yeah. And I mean, I I know for for myself and for for Amanda, uh, who's also on here, there was so many times as I I listened to your book. So I I feel like I kind of cheated a little bit because I'm used to hearing your voice and stuff. Um, But there were so many times where we like text each other or we would see each other and we would go, yeah, you, you resonated with that. I'm like, I totally understand. I and totally you were in different that. churches. Oh my God. Oh, very oh. much. So our growing up experience was, I think very different, but there's so but much the familiar is... terminology and concepts. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was so prevalent. I think for me listening to the book, cause I also listened to it on audible, which was awesome. Um, <laughs> it was therapeutic. Like yeah. it was a, just a many, many moments of like, oh my gosh, this validates things that I felt, but never understood how to articulate even into mm-hmm. my thirties. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and Linda, I think that when you talk about like a storytelling community, I, I think that's so great because I, I think people connect to stories. I certainly connected to the stories that, that you, you presented um, in the book, the interviews that you did. And, and I think that those tangible connections like taking it out of a clinical um circumstance helps people yeah identify that they're not alone and Mm -hmm. that um they yeah you can make those connections because you're talking person to person um do you think you guys think there's anybody i mean kind of people who listen to this podcast but is there anybody left who doesn't know what purity culture is? Oh, or I wonder. Like I think there is actually. So maybe it'd okay. be helpful. Yeah, Linda, Linda. If <laughs> you could actually kind of give us in your words, like define purity culture and what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, first of all, I just want to say it's pretty new that we're using this terminology. Mm. Um, you know, when my book first came out in 2018, you know, I remember being contacted by a lot of journalists in the early days who would say, you know, tell me about your kind of, you know, abnormal experience in your abnormal community, right? Like it was all sort of this voyeuristic, like, what is this is wild? Tell me about this, you know? And now, you know, just a few years later, this idea of purity culture is something that's increasingly being recognized. So now I get contacted by people saying, let's talk about purity culture. Right. Um, So it's still quite, it's still still quite Mm -hmm. new to be uh, recognized. Um, so yeah, so I think a definition is probably uh, uh, important. So first of all, generally speaking, purity culture is associated with the white American evangelical Christian purity movement, which of course had a global impact. Um, and that movement, you know, started in the early 1990s and it went until the early 2000s. Um, you know, and really was that movement had its its growth and its sort of bell curve, um, you know, based on uh, government funding for mm-hmm. abstinence only before marriage mm-hmm. messaging yeah. at the federal and state level here mm-hmm. in this country. Um, but, you know, so generally speaking, when people say purity culture, 
they're referring to the purity movement that I just talked about. Mm-hmm. However, I actually see purity culture as something a, a little bit larger, right? Um, because evangelicals don't have a monopoly on the ethics that undergird purity culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can find those ethics mm-hmm. in lots of the different um, Christianities, religions, cultures, communities, families, right? Um, So a purity culture, in my view, is a culture that teaches very strict gender expectations um, for the for the start, um, you know, based on a stereotype based binary. Right. Um, Men are to be the strong masculine leaders, uh, particularly of the household and the church. And women are expected to support them to be stereotypically feminine, right? To be supportive wives and mothers, um, you know, again, particularly in the house and in the church. Um, and then the sexual expectations that are taught in purity culture, I, I kind of see them as going beneath, uh, as kind of coming in under the gender expectations yeah. because the sexual expectations are very different, right? Um, you know, everyone is expected to maintain absolute sexlessness before marriage, um, you know, an extreme version of that, like we saw in the purity movement, is no sexual thoughts, feelings, actions, you know, anything. Um, and then they're expected to become hypersexual after marriage, right? That's sort of the two sides of the coin, you know, both are expectations. Um, however, the way that one of my interviewees um, uh, you know, framed it, which I think is very helpful, um, you know, is men in the community, in, in purity culture are taught their minds are evil, hmm. whereas women are taught their bodies are oh, evil. Oh, that's a really Isn't helpful it? way to put that. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So, so as a result, you know, we often see, you know, and both can create tremendous harm and tremendous damage to be sure. Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, but, but because women are taught their bodies are evil, right? Um, you know, it, it's a, there's a greater objectification that happens. So, so women in this purity culture will be defined as an object, as a pure object or an impure object, right? As worthy or unworthy Christian or not Christian, so on and so, so forth. Whereas the way in which purity culture um, uh, works with with men is more around what you do, right? It's not who you are. It's what you do, what you think, what you feel, what choices you make. Um, so a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that's quite different is because women are taught their bodies are evil. Um, you know, women are also taught that they can, and girls, that they can lose their purity, not only through their own sexual thoughts or feelings or choices, but also by quote unquote, inspiring sexual thoughts or feelings or choices, um, particularly in men, right? Um, Making the, um, you know, the woman or girl a stumbling block would be a common term uh, to men and boys pathway to God, right? So if you're you know, not dressed modestly enough, or if you're perceived as flirting, you know, all those things can, um, can result in, in a perception of you having lost your purity, even if maybe you've never had a sexual thought yourself. Yeah, I think, I think that's really interesting. I've got a a quote here from your book where you said, if I wasn't careful, they told me I may become a stumbling block and maybe I already was one. And I'm like, oh my goodness, Uh, like this, yeah, the, the whole thing, 
thing. And you talk about like that women were not only considered damaged because of this, but they were dangerous and not just harmful mm-hmm. to themselves, but it became that it, it could be like almost this, this harm to the entire community. And yes. mm-hmm. I, I definitely felt that pressure growing up um, and that the weight of, of that on my shoulders that I wasn't only responsible for keeping myself pure, but also for keeping my like, quote unquote, like brothers in Christ pure by how I dressed and by how I interacted with them. Um, And it, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of long-term damage that comes out of that. Beyond the body as well, right? Because I can remember, you know, I had a strong personality and so there were comments about that. I, I was telling Todd and Allison earlier, I had this memory that I kind of got rid of, I think, of um, so our, my youth pastor at the time and another youth leader calling me uh, what would be, I would eventually grow up to be a cult leader. And really, and everybody laughed about it because it was quite funny, but really, like, the, the implication of that was that I was charismatic or something, and then they told me that I didn't understand the power that I had over other people. So, you know, it was a 15 16 year old i just thought well then i need to be quieter so So it's a way of like negating your strength or or yeah yeah Yeah, so personality Mm -hmm. also came into it Mm -hmm. well and that's actually why i i like to think of gender as the kind of headline right Mm -hmm. um i think when people think of purity culture they often think of sexuality first and certainly sexuality is a major part of it but um but you're absolutely right you know the, the sexuality expectations or the you know expectations sort of tied to body and sexuality and sexual thought um, is, is all, is just one of the expectations of gender, right? Mm-hmm. And the gender expectations also include all of these other things. <laughs> it's all wrapped up together. Yeah. Cause there were certainly for me, like areas in which I could participate, areas <clears throat> in which I couldn't, areas in which I could have a measure of leadership or opinion, autonomy, um, and certainly ways in which I wasn't. And then, yeah, I think from that stems, how when you fit into the proper gender norms then you'll fit into the proper norms within your obviously heterosexual marriage after you get married and like all those things kind of like it's like a dominoes one cues into the other um one thing that you talk about in your in your book that I found really interesting and you've already alluded it alluded to a little bit um when talking about abstinence only education is you you use the term purity industry as kind of like this larger thing that kind of comes out of purity culture. Could you, could you talk to us a little bit about what the differences are between them or how one might lead to another? Yeah. I mean, the purity industry, um, is, is something that I, I really am identifying with that white evangelical Christian church Mm -hmm. here in the U S, um, that, that was born out of the availability of, of funding, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and industry was born because there were people who wanted to pay for it and, and they had deep pockets. Um, you know, I don't know if you have spent any time with sex educators, but they tend to not be abstinence only before marriage messaging advocates, right. you know, mm-hmm. they, they tend to be more comprehensive sexuality mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. So, but there was a ton of money, for abstinence only, you know, and evangelical um, Christians were doing a lot of abstinence only before marriage messaging. So this already existed previously, but now there was money for it. Um, and here in um, the U.S., every state except one actually uh 
provided a state match in order to get federal dollars for absence only before Isn't marriage messaging. Wow. Yeah. Well, and there, and we're talking about over $2 billion in federal money um, for this, um, for absence only before marriage messaging since the early wow. 1980s. So a lot of money and a lot of it requires state matches. So was so the exception even, notable? Was the state that was an exception notable or not? It, it's California. So yeah, okay. you might not be surprised. Okay. No, not at all. <laughs> well, and, and I remember one of the, one of the stark differences that I, that I found um, listening to your book was uh, in Canada. I, I went to a reasonably conservative private Christian school uh, in elementary school and high school, but I still had, I guess, reasonably competent and comprehensive sex education because it's a requirement both federally and provincially um, mm. for here. So there was parts where I was like, oh, I can't identify with that because I was actually told what my own biology was. And mm. I was like, and they weren't allowed to, my school definitely um, emphasized abstinence only, but like they taught us what condoms were and how to use them and those sorts of things. And so there's part where mm. I, I, I do see a little bit of there's delineation between mm-hmm. the two. Well, it also countries. shows you what the, what the money does. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now the peak of the industry was, and I'm looking at Amanda here too, because I know you've read this book. And you oh, speak about this. All. You speak about this book in your book. Um, is it is it kind of true that the peak of the industry was represented by a book called uh, "I Kiss Dating Goodbye" by Joshua Harris? Um, well, that book came out in 1997. Okay. So I don't ago? know. Wow. What? Yeah. What's that? I said that long ago. Yeah. 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 So I'm not sure if it was the peak of the industry, but it certainly was. Um, it certainly was like a coalescing, right? Um, You know, there were other books that people read, you know, the industry included things like curriculum and videos Mm -hmm. and pop music and rings and events and, you know, et cetera. But, um, but, you know, there wasn't like a voice of the purity movement, right? right? Or a voice of the purity industry. And, and I Kiss Dating Goodbye really, really became the book. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't right the only. It? Oh, I sure did. It was almost like required reading in our youth group. Oh, mine too. Yeah. Right. Like I, I it, still can visualize there were many the cover. Copies. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But there were many copies of it. So, Linda, this hearing Amanda Nelson here, this is a story you've heard many times. <laughs> it, right. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I do remember as part of that industry going to things like Creation Festival just across the border, so into the U.S., and mm. there were big merch tents, you know, where you can get artist T-shirts and things. But there was also a very big section, even in the early 2000s, that was purity. A, a purity thing. Yeah. Yeah. Whether or not it was the rings or literature or even T-shirts of things that explicitly yeah. said like waiting for sex or waiting for wow. my husband those types of yeah 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 slogans which is so interesting it's so interesting to me something i've been thinking about recently is you know the the sexualization of young people that happens in purity culture yeah. mm-hmm. so you know if you're wearing a t-shirt that says waiting for my husband and you're like a 14 year old girl <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. Like, y- y- you know, you're being sexualized and, and you're sort of allowing, you know, people to immediately think about sex when they see you. That's just weird. <laughs> or, or, yeah. And in, in this very strange way. And, and, you know, some of the, some of the things, maybe not allowing people, but, you know, maybe that's the wrong terminology, but you understand. So, yeah. you know, one of the things that, um, 
that's interesting to me is, you know, eventually purity rings got to Disney stars, right? And to mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah, particularly Jonas Brothers or something. Or yep. something right, yeah, yeah, right. And, and one Simpson. of the, oh, yeah. yeah. And one of the Jonas Brothers recently was talking about how strange it was to be a young boy and to be constantly asked about sex right and and to and to to be asked to talk about the fact that he wasn't going to have sex until marriage in a way that felt felt very sexualizing to him right um you know and and i feel like in many ways you know these kinds of products and sort of putting them on people's bodies right um you know because so many of them are wearable products right um is a is a is a communication that that's the most important thing about you. Right. Um, and, and that is already the message that so many girls and women get in society. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how athletic you are. It doesn't matter, you know, whatever, like if you're in the classroom wearing a shirt that we deem to be immodest, you know, we see you as sexual, you might be here to learn, but that's not your role. We see you as sexual. So you need to go home and change. Right. Um, and, and, and really the purity, you know, movement and industry uh, is a big part of that, of, of kind of uh, reducing, reducing young people to, you know, one very limited part of them. Yeah. And, and I think that um, when, when we talk about uh, sex and like sexual sins was there, there was like a hierarchy I think in, in my understanding of like sins and sinfulness and things to be aware of. And, and I think you've hit it right on the nose that there, there is what I might term an unhealthy obsession with sex and, uh, women's bodies, men's minds. Um, where do you think that that comes from within evangelicalism? The obsession with sex? Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Because for some people that were really like, it's so taboo. They talk about it so much. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, obsession is the right word, yeah. right? Um, yeah. It's a, it's an appropriate word. I mean, there's so, it comes from so many different places. Um, you know, we, as a, as a culture really, um, are, have a lot of these things embedded, you know, and historically have for many years, you know, some people will trace, some people will trace this, the answer to that question back to early Christianity, though certainly it could be traced back further um, and point to the mind body separation that early Christians adopted from sort of Greco Roman thought um, and the way in which, um, you know, the early Christians became more, more obsessed with the mind-body separation and with the mind-body hierarchy, right, um, than, than, than the Jews before them had been, um, you know, because of this Greco-Roman influence. Um, you know, so you can trace it back all the way there. You can trace it, you know, like, I mean, honestly, there's just, we as a larger culture, you know, and, and, and as a history of people have, have been through the ringer with, with, um, sexuality. And, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about, about the sort of modern manifestation is, um, is, 
the fact that if you can get into sexuality, right, you know, into what somebody's doing in their private lives mm-hmm. when nobody else is around, you know, you're really inside of them, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and and whether that was the intent or not, that was the impact. Mm-hmm. So, so many people who were raised within the purity movement, myself among them, um, you know, eventually started to challenge the ideas of, uh, you know, that their worth was dependent upon their sexual expression or lack thereof or what have you, but found that though they intellectually disagreed, right, though they might see the world very differently now, in fact, even, that their bodies were still living out the old story of um, shame and fear and anxiety and that's because it gets deep deep inside Mm -hmm. of you there's like an imprinting like an indoctrinization that Mm -hmm. happens because even even though I haven't really been in it's been decades I've been out of that and I still have these these very visceral reactions to to certain things about sex like even just this week uh helping my my daughter uh, get clothes ready for school. We had a hot week. And so I grabbed one of her summer dresses out. And then I turned to my husband and I said, is she allowed to wear sleeveless shirts at school? I can't mm. remember because I wasn't. And it was explained to me that the reason I wasn't was because I was, it, it was a sexually based reason that yeah. like, you know, you can see bra straps and shoulders are, I guess, apparently very seductive, mm. but I, like, I didn't want to sexualize my nine-year-old, but yeah. it's still like, it's very Still interesting mm-hmm. how, how deeply embedded these things get. Um, and you, you speak of uh, stumbling blocks a lot in, in your book, and I think it's a really helpful framework and one that um, people who are, are familiar with the evangelical culture and subculture uh, really can, can understand. It's, it's a good framework for that. Uh, I remember definitely being labeled as a stumbling block. Um, but can you tell us a bit about where that comes from like I I know like there are certain biblical passages and stuff um like where it was come from and then how it was used within purity culture yeah well one of the things that's so interesting about uh Christianities (laughs) that kind of try to reduce spiritual teachings to sound bites Mm -hmm. um is that oftentimes, eventually, the soundbite looks nothing like the spiritual teaching itself and might actually look exactly like the opposite of the spiritual yes. teaching. <laughs> Todd is nodding his head. <laughs> I just know the stumbling block text. It's the opposite of what, but anyway. Yeah. So, you know, so I, there's certainly many people who grew up in, in purity culture who will never touch religion again, not with a 10-foot pole, and they mm. want to have anything to do with it, Right. And I, you know, I'm certainly not trying to convince anyone to come back to the church because Mm -hmm. there's some other way to read the text. However, that having been said, you know, when I was writing the book, I started to look in the Bible at this term stumbling block. Um, And it it was really surprising to me, as it often is when I turn to the Bible to review some of the things that I learned, right? Um, Just just how different it, it really is. Yeah. So, so certainly stumbling block. So first, first here's, here's how it shows up in, in purity culture. Stumbling block 
uh, is generally a shorthand for a girl or a woman who is um, bringing out sexual thoughts or feelings in a man. Um, so you could be a stumbling block because you um, are wearing that sleeveless dress, for example, right? Um, you know, as you as you mentioned about your daughter. But there are many other you know, ways that you can be a stumbling block. Now that's not the only way that the term is used, but it's used that way so commonly that it's it's like a shorthand, right? Um, so it, it has become the definition within, within that community for many um, people. But if you look in the Bible, you know, the term is used lots of different ways, lots of different times, but one of the most uh, prominent um, or sort of like regular you know, ways in which it's used, you know, the ways in which it's used most often is, um, you know, a stumbling block is somebody who um, is, is, is judging somebody else in a way that makes them not want to be part of the Christian community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so really, in many cases, it's, you know, admonishing people for, for pushing others out of community by shaming them, by judging them, right? Um, and really encouraging people to actually act with love. And I, when I read that, I just mm-hmm. remember being so struck by the irony yeah. <laughs> that that the shorthand for the term, um, you know, was actually the exact thing that the yeah. term most often <laughs> was warning people against. Yeah. You know, it had become the very thing that, um, that, you know, there was, there was a warning for it, for it, not for people not to become, well, you like, know? Yeah. Like the term in Romans in the, in the 14th chapter, it's this non-judgmentalism that you had mentioned. Let us know, let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, resolving instead to not put these stumbling blocks or hindrances in the way of another. It, it's the, and I think, Back to what you guys were talking about before, how it really gets into you, how it takes, I, as someone who like has worked in the church and was a a youth minister at the time of purity culture, but kind of was not pushing in that direction. And I used to get in, in, uh, oh, parents were constantly (laughs) parents and other like, why, why aren't you talking about sex more? Why aren't you? And, and, um, I still have this, uh, I still get upset about how, uh, purity culture, in my in my estimation, abused scripture, and mm. and I think part of the reason it gets in, I think you could speak to this, you guys, but is that the association is built between the Bible says, so mm-hmm. it's so it's the authority that is like you have to be this way because the Bible says, mm-hmm. so then and then Linda, as you're talking about, if you can get into somebody's head in their private and personal lives, so it's their private lives, but with whatever sense of the transcendent is there so that your judgment becomes a, a, a self judgment with some kind of divine authority or something, which is just right. so terrible and horrible. And, and I can imagine the work you must have to do to, because you talk about, rec, you know, being a recovery coach and helping people deconstruct purity culture. But on some level, this is a theological deconstruction for many people. Would it, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. That's certainly part of the equation for some people. I mean, well, I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of theology, right? right? Um, you know, for everyone, for everyone, it's a worldview deconstruction, you know, which would include a deconstruction of self, you know, and a deconstruction of, of, um, 
how we see others and how we understand the world, right? Um, you know, and and for some that includes religion and spirituality. You know, one of the things that that I work with people on the most, or really perhaps the thing that I work with people on the most, or the kind of umbrella under which everything else falls, is helping people to move from seeing themselves, seeing others, seeing the world uh, through the lens of someone else, mm-hmm. right? What mm-hmm. others will think is good or bad, what others mm-hmm. say the world is, you know, et cetera, to learning how to feel our own feelings mm-hmm. and identify our own feelings, learning how to trust that voice inside of us that we were told to never trust because it's a sign of selfishness or maybe it's even the devil, you know, speaking in your ear, right? If it goes against what the church leaders are saying, it's inherently bad though, right? Um, So don't trust that inner self. So teaching people to trust their gut, trust their intuition that may in fact even be the Holy Spirit, right? Um, You know, if that term um, resonates with folks. And, you know, and teaching them to then use the, that newfound um, identification and trust in one's feelings and one's gut and one's experiences of the world to develop a sense of values, a sense mm-hmm. of beliefs, a sense of ethics that is rooted internally um, in our own relationship to all of these things. So for some people, there's a real redefinition that happens in that process, mm-hmm. um, you know, of our relationship to sexuality. For some, a redefinition of our relationship to spirituality. For some, a redefinition of our relationship to self-worth, right? All of these things. Um, but really, it is so totalizing. Mm-hmm. And so, right you know, word. there is almost no one for whom um, it's it's just like like when I'm working with people in a one-on-one coaching situation and they come to me and they say, listen, I want to talk about how this stuff is showing up in, you know, in my marriage bed. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, my partner asks me what I want and I have no idea how to answer who could possibly know what you want. I've never been allowed to want. Yeah. Right. And, and then, you know, we'll start to ask questions and I'll be like, well, what do you want in other areas of your life? <laughs> you know, and w- what about, you know, what, what are the times in which you have been able to identify wants and then that you've shut down those wants in other areas of your life and allowed someone else's wants to supersede your own, right? Or have so silenced your own wants in other areas of your life that you're not even aware of what they are, right? You know, this is almost always something so, 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 so much bigger than sexuality. Um, You know, it really is about um, how we walk through the world. So deconstruction, you know, is an appropriate word yeah. because it really is like a total dismantling of how we understand ourselves and how we understand the world um, that needs to be done in order for us to find the freedom that we want in these, these very specific places, like, you know, like our marriage bed, for example. So um, that allows us to then begin to reconstruct a new, yeah. uh, healthier so, model. So now when, when you're talking about this, first of all, oh my goodness, yes, amen to all of that. Like I, I see it in, in, in my life, in, in lives of my friends, in other people that I've talked to. I think it, it is very much, yeah, it, it is encompassing and it is 
it, it is so internalized and just it, it like becomes malignant. It doesn't just stay in sexuality. It it spreads mm-hmm. to everything else. Um, and I, I think um, if we if we go back to, to some of the, the things that you outline in your book, when you talk about the first stumbling block, you talk about pretty much like if purity culture doesn't work, it's your fault. Like you're doing something wrong here. And, and I think that message of telling people that they are innately wrong if something isn't working, I, I think goes back to what you're talking about, that if um, uh, that, that people don't know how to trust themselves because they've never been been allowed to before. Um, is, that, yeah. is that a correct kind of interpretation of that first stumbling block that you describe, or is it more than that? No, you're no, you're exactly right. You know, it's it's as specific as purity culture. You know, if if that doesn't work for you, then you're wrong, and it's as broad as you know, absolutely everything. It's um, it's this idea that we are going to reduce the the spiritual teachings to these simplistic concepts, um, and then we're going to have the deliverers and the holders of those simplistic concepts be the leadership of this community and the celebrities of those of this community. So if you live into anything that doesn't fit into that simple frame, which will is, is almost mm. always going to happen because simple frames can't hold very much, you know, um, mm. you're taught that that is a, a sign that you're doing something wrong, right? Because, you know, God says, that we're right, you know? So you've internalized that message that of, of God's voice inside of you judging you, but really the voice inside of you that's judging you is the voice of those who are reducing these, these um, messages to something so simplistic that, that there's, really, there's really almost an inevitability that it won't work, you know? I'm thinking some of the totalizing aspects and in line with the deconstruction um, and I'm thinking to the interviews in the book are so good. Hey, there's, there's oh, so many things. So that, many good and stories. And some of them are so heart wrenching and, mm-hmm. and cause there's stories of abuse and uh, terrible things in there as well. There's, and in most cases you mentioned you're, you're not using the real names of, of the people. There's a one that, that we all remember the three of us, Solange. Oh yeah. Solange. Yeah. The mom. And I, yeah. think it's so, I think it's so, and I think Solange or however it's said, but, um, I think it's that individual. Yeah, she that, she chose that name. She, yeah, exactly. She, she was very excited about being Solange. <laughs> Love that. So yeah, she was like, my name will be Solange. <laughs> yeah. And I would just call her that from now on. Like, if it was me. <laughs> this but is anyway, now your name. <laughs> the, um, I think it's her that mentions having daughters that were in like this kind of youth group yeah. or this kind, of, and expresses regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- yeah. And that really hit me. You know that. Because if you look back at your, how do you in, in deconstruction, there must be some kind of unpacking to, to tearing apart that totalizing aspect. Because the concept of negating like a whole, a whole formative period in your life mm. or for your children or whatever, because with her, it seemed to be, I'm trying, I think I'm remembering correctly. I wish I'd never connected them with that, you know, that youth yeah. group or mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. How do you help people through that? <laughs> I mean, or should, so do they just hard. say the whole thing was terrible or, or that must be hard for people because for some people, those also include some of the best memories of their lives, those times. Yeah. Intrinsically yeah. tied. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I mean, I think that there is certainly a, you know, a roller coaster of emotion and relationship to memory uh, that people go through during the healing process. Um, you know, but I do think that the beginning of deconstruction requires you to really take it all apart, you know, and to question everything. And only then, once it's once all the blocks are sitting on the ground, can you begin to say, which of these blocks might I still want to build with, right? Which of these blocks might still be useful to me? Um, you know, there's a, a interviewee who says, uh, you know, I, I've started looking at lesbian pornography, she says, because maybe I'm a lesbian. Maybe I'm a scientist. I have no idea, right? Like I have spent so many years trying to be who they told me to be that I have absolutely no idea who I am. And that I think is a really good summary oh, of um, the place in which many, many people find themselves at the beginning of deconstruction. You know, maybe I'm a scientist and I never knew it. You know, how many things, how many things are possible for me when I have never really looked at this question of who I am through my own eyes, right? And this question of what the world is through my own experience um, or even through my own relationship with God, right? Mm -hmm. So, so yes. So I do think that, I do think that it's a, you know, it's, it's an important part of the, of the journey. Yeah. I think that there's probably some, some things that, that listeners and such have, have either picked up or intrinsically kind of know from experience with this, but, um, I'd like to talk about some of some of the effects of purity culture, um, both both um, the the short term or the immediate effects as well as long term, because I think that I mean, Amanda and I would both attest uh, as well as I think a lot of your interviewers like there. There's a lot of both. Mm -hmm. Like I remember I remember one instance where I was pulled aside um, at my my church. I was on the, the worship team and I was singing and I had one of the other female uh, leaders pull me aside and she made me go home and change because what I was wearing was inappropriate. And I remember like I had, mm. was like proud of the outfit I put together and I felt really beautiful. And mm. then all of a sudden I just felt this heaviness of shame and I changed into like these bland work clothes that I had because it would be inoffensive and I would become invisible. And I, I think about like that immediate effect, but then the long-term effect of that was, was quite, quite intense for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I mean, Todd and Allison know this, and people close to us know this, but um, my boyfriend, like who I've been living with for several years now, um, I didn't tell anybody about him for quite a long yeah. time. And it was it was a surprise to Todd and Allison when they found out that I was dating someone. I think you'd been with um, him for about four or five months when you I told us. It might have been a little longer than that. <laughs> but I was afraid of them knowing that I was seeing someone. Um, partly yeah, because yeah. he wasn't a Christian and he was separated from his wife but not yet divorced. And so there were just all of these things and messages that I had in my head and I was convinced that the role that I had in the church that we are no longer a part of, um, that I probably would should and need to step down from those um, mm -hmm. and that they just, they didn't know. And yeah. <laughs> Todd I still doesn't believe that, but um, like there's a bit of disbelief, like how could you feel that way? And it's not because... I thought Todd himself would immediately reject my boyfriend. Um, but the institution that we were mm -hmm. in, even still, and that wasn't that long ago, um, and other friends as well. Um, and yeah. I think part of that mm -hmm. is even the message all through high school and past was that you need to find a good Christian boy. 
that's rolled around in my head mm. a lot this week as I've listened to your book and like that just those little like micro messages. Yep. Um, they pop up. Yeah. Yeah. Are those are those common long term effects, Linda, or, or is there quite of a, a range in terms of the long term effects? Yeah. Um, no, those are those are common. Yeah. Those are common. You know, these these messages hang out. Right. And in many cases, I find that, you know, people think that they have gotten to a different place and they're sort mm. of over it all. Right. Um, and then they get into a new situation and they, you know, discover a message (laughs) that is still alive and well, Mm -hmm. right. And uh, rattling around there just waiting, you know, so Mm -hmm. getting into a relationship uh, tends to be an area Mm -hmm. where a lot of this stuff comes back for people um, in different ways and shapes, Um, getting married, it comes back for people, having kids, it comes back for people um, because the messaging is so exhaustive. Right. And there's specific messaging on, around all of these things. Right. Um, so so it so it, it it's something that we encounter sometimes through lived experience that we we don't even realize is still there. Um, but, you know, the great thing is that the more that we can identify that. Right. The more that we are um, teaching ourselves that we don't have to live that way, we can teach ourselves that we can live another way and make a different choice mm. in a way that starts to actually do the hard work of um, of keeping us from having to go through that trigger again and again and again and again. So, I mean, what's incredible about both of what you shared is is the sort of recognition. Right. And seeing it and being Mm. able to identify it and being able to talk about it, because that's how we heal. You know, the you know, shame makes us want to hide these things into a dark corner and never, 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 never talk about them. And that's how so many of us ended up feeling like we were alone. You know, probably the number one thing that I can say to somebody is you are not alone. You know, because the number one thing that readers say to me or that people who hear me talk or, you know, engage with a nonprofit or whatever is I thought I was alone. (laughs) You know, I thought I was the only one. And that is a lie that is born out of the shame that that um, makes us keep these things secret. And so the healing process, of course, is by telling the truth and seeing the things and talking about them and exposing them in a way that um, that begins to create shifts in our life. That's you. You mentioned um, I'm just thinking as you guys talk about the, the idea, because Maddie, you're talking about like, what would what would I feel or something? Mm-hmm. Right. And and um, just this concept, which is bigger than purity culture, but purity culture depends on it as well. The idea of handing you know, judgment upon you to, to somebody else, right? That And, and how we have perpetrated that yes. in, in many cultures, mm-hmm. evangelical church culture clearly clearly being one of them, that, that uh, oh, no, what if I disappoint the following people or something? And it's such a, yeah. a tragic, um, it, it makes things like faith really, really small, you know, mm-hmm. how, how we, we weaponize that kind of stuff. But Linda, you mentioned when you're describing purity culture at the beginning that, that from the 1990s through the early 2000s, um, that would mean that now we're in 2021, um, that there's, that things have shifted and changed. And do you, what's happening out there now in terms of evangelical churches talking about sex is, is purity, are, are there still remnants 
um, or is something different happening or do you have a handle on that? Yeah, well, purity culture is, is gigantic um, and, and by no means over. Mm, okay. uh, the, the purity movement, right, okay. you know, and the purity mm. industry, that's, that's what was time bound. Um, but, but the mm. ethic that undergirds, uh, you know, is certainly well established in many churches uh, today, including many, many, many evangelical Christian churches um, and in many other places. So yeah, there's a, a lot more work to be done. I think that one of the things that's interesting in, in evangelical churches right now is that um, people are starting to see the pain mm -hmm. and what they do with the pain varies. But I think that we're getting to the point now where we can't deny that purity culture has deeply, deeply harmed people, you know, and, um, and, the, and many other things, right. You know, and the question will be increasingly who contends with that deeply enough to say, we really need to change things, you know, and who contends with that at a surface enough level that they say we need to soften the language or we need to, you know, oh, couch this a yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Or, or, you know, like, I guess people can date because you remember part of, part of the purity movement was, you know, don't Courting. date even. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was, was, was courtship. So, you know, so there's, there's, um, there's a very, there is, are a lot of different responses and what I see winning out in evangelicalism right now is a soft peddling response. Um, you know, there are, are books that are being written by evangelicals that talk about purity culture um, in negative terms, but also not, yeah. you know, <laughs> and there are books that talk about deconstruction in positive terms and also not, you know? Um, so all of these, all of these, um, all of these things I think are, are, are showing up in evangelical spaces um, and, and, and people are just dealing with them in different ways. And unfortunately I don't see, I don't see the, the system, right. uh, you know, creating a substantive change though. Certainly some individual churches are, and many individuals are. It's interesting. I mean, I've seen that happen. So if you, you do a lot of theological work as well, um, and I've seen that happen in so, with so many other things in, in evangelical culture. It, it could be a theological concept. It could be something that is just so kind of difficult and strong and offensive. And then it is softened. Um, yes. And in some ways, as you're pointing out, that becomes kind of more dangerous because it just gets diffuse, right? It's diffuse yeah. throughout a culture. And it's not as kind of easily identifiable sometimes, but to see that still there. Now, having said that, uh, as we move to close, um, speaking with you, we can generally pick up um, a positive nature, your hopeful kind of nature. There must be things even in this work, and particularly, I would think, in working with people one-on-one -on -one, that give you great hope, that, mm -hmm. that help you to see um, kind of that positive movement forward. What is it that gives you hope uh, now? At this time yeah. of that. Yeah. I mean, it's been incredible how many people are coming out of the woodwork and saying, this is my story. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm just astounded by how many people there are and by how many people are stepping out into the light, you know? Yeah. And 
that to me, I, I can't even, I can't even tell you how much hope that fills me with. Right. Um, you know, yes, maybe that system that we came out of isn't going to substantively change, but there is something new that's being created. Right. You know, I, I love, I love the people that I work with because I find that they're just, they're all so great. (laughs) You know, they're all so brave. They're all people who, um, you know, are, who really thought deeply about a life that they were taught not to thought, think deeply about, you know, mm. and who really felt the pain that they've experienced and, um, and risked it all uh, to say, I think that there's more out there for me. You know, I think that there's more out there, period. And so yeah. that sort of energy has, has created a relationship between these people and the world that is that is quite inspiring, right? The people who are deconstructing purity are oftentimes also deconstructing white supremacy, which, by the right. way, is deeply connected, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and they're also, you know, fighting for LGBTQIA people's rights, yeah. and they're also, you know, I mean, they're they're just building a different way of being, and they're doing it with. Um, you know, with their heart on their sleeves, you know, I, you know, in the book, I, I encourage people to tell their stories, but gosh, I just, I just, I don't think I could have imagined how many people would actually be doing that right now. You know, um, you know, and there's, I, I was recently featured, um, in a New York times video and there's a woman who I'm talking with in the video, um, who was talking about how she's just, the, they, they came in and they recorded kind of a, a small group processing these things together. And um, she's talking about how she's just starting to realize for the first time that she was raised in purity culture and that wow. that's why she, you know, has all of this deep shame. And she's just realizing it for the very first time she's saying in the group. Right. Um, and then, you know, she signed the, the release to say you could mm. use this video and then she forgot about it. And then, um, <laughs> you know, the pandemic happened. And so yeah. the video didn't go anywhere course, for a year yeah. and, um, oh, no. and then it just came out and she was like, ah, I can't, I guess I'm in the video in the New York times. And, um, and I wrote her and I was like, I hope that's okay. You know, um, you know, that, that cause she says very personal things and she's like, yes, yes. Thank you for helping me find my voice. Yes. You know, and th- and that to me is something that I just keep seeing over and over and over again. Um, you know, I keep seeing people go from, I just realized that there's a reason that I'm hurting. And it's scary for me to tell you this small group of people about it, right? I'm, I'm going to tell you, you group of five, and my heart is going to be beating, you know, wildly, and I'm going to be shaking, and I'm going to be terrified of your judgment. Uh-huh. And very soon afterward, you know, they're like, okay, put it in the New York yeah. Times, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like, you're like, this is who I am. Let me live my life. Uh, you know? So yeah. I, you describe that movement so well, and you convey the hope. And I'm thinking back to your book, um, and you're kind enough in your book to share uh, some of the experience of the difficulty that that writing it uh, brought you, and even having to take pause, you know, and and the, and the cost that you had to bear in a sense for for taking this on that's probably too strong of a way of putting it but that clearly has opened these avenues for other people and so mm-hmm. you speak so well and and um uh are so welcoming 
because you know you were willing to do that and i'm sure back then you you wouldn't have known that you know <laughs> you'd be having this conversation with this woman and then it'd be the new york times and but doesn't right. that show us such a great and hopeful way forward so yes. we're so grateful you for so you much. taking the time with Thank us you. i want to really recommend the book yes oh, um so it's absolutely. called pure linda for k everyone. klein you can look it up um, and, uh, because if you haven't read the book, uh, go and read it, listen to it, uh, read by the author, read very yeah. well as the mm-hmm. three of us have, have said. Well, and I, and I think one thing that's important to state is even if you don't think that you were necessarily affected by purity culture, like the book gives a lot of context to understand the people who were, which could be people in your lives, your children, or, um, like there, there's, it's more, it's for more than just people who went through and were kind of like survivors or ex- like people who experienced purity culture. Yeah. Like it, mm-hmm. it's, it's a yeah. very good education. Yeah. It's, there's always yeah. something, the line between kind of victim and perpetrator and stuff can of some of, even some of these things can be. So th- the book is helpful to people yes. who may have, you know, really propagated this as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. but, uh, mm-hmm. but aren't necessarily all sold on that even at the time. So, so Linda, thank you so very much. Uh, what a joy to speak with you and I uh, hope we can continue conversations. We'll follow your work. Um, and uh, we just had such a great time speaking. With you. Thanks thank so much. You. Thank you. Thank you.